You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. And his second coming. This is not the Mahdi's coming. This is Yeshua's second coming. So the remaining portion where we left off last Shabbat in chapter 17 of the book of Luke, it's one of the many prophetic passages in the scriptures. In it, Yeshua spoke about the quote-unquote already now and the not yet of the kingdom. We're going to look in further at this in a couple of months when we hit chapter 21, but let me just say here that biblical prophecy is not given so that we can sit around and speculate about what's going to happen in the future. It was always given so that we can apply it in how we live today in the present in light of what God has promised to do in the future. Before we get into our passage this morning, let's start by quickly defining some basic terms of biblical prophecy. That is a great graphic, April, by the way. We are stepping up in our graphics. Let's talk about quickly apocalyptic writings. What are those? Well, those are scriptures that reveal truth that has been concealed. The word apocalypse means to unveil or to reveal. We find in verse 30 of this chapter about the day in which, quote, the Son of Man is made fully known. The word known in the Greek Apocalypsis, from which we get apocalypse. There are apocalyptic passages in Scripture, right? In Isaiah, in Daniel, in Ezekiel, in Zechariah, and of course in the book of Revelation. And at the same time that all of that was being developed around the period between 200 BCE and 100 CE, Jewish non-believers and non-Jewish Christians writers were also producing a lot of non-canonical literary works that because of their similarities to biblical apocalyptic writings, they're now referred to as well as apocalyptic. Some of these uh, that you may have even come across are the books of First Enoch, for Ezra, the Apocalypse of Baruch, the Book of Jubilees, the Assumption of Moses, the Psalms of Solomon, Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, and many others. That's what apocalyptic writings are. Number two, eschatology. What's that? It's just simply the study of the last days. The Greek word for last days or end times is eschaton, the day of the Lord. What's that? It's all the events associated with the return of the Messiah, right? The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period. It is a term used throughout biblical prophecy to describe multiple events, That will take place over a long period of time. When someone says we live in the day of smartphones, they're not talking about a single day, are they? No, they're talking about a period of time. And so in this chapter, chapter 17 of Luke, Yeshua used day and days interchangeably. The day of the Lord encompasses the tribulation and the return of Messiah at the battle of Armageddon. And finally, the millennium. Various views of the millennium, interpretations of this coming age of God's kingdom relate to the chronological relation of this period 
to Yeshua's second coming, and whether this time mentioned only in Revelation chapter 20 is to be understood literally or in a spiritual sense. There's no unanimous understanding in the ecclesia at large, but the predominant main views are as follows, if you're taking any notes. There's premillennialism, the belief that the second coming of our Messiah will precede the millennial kingdom. This takes a mostly literal approach. Premillenarians expect a period of a thousand years in duration during which the Messiah is going to reign with his followers here on the earth prior to the establishment of uh, the new heavens, the eternal new heavens, and the new earth. The locations and the dimension of that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. The millennial reign will be characterized in this understanding by international peace and justice resulting from the universal enforced rule of Messiah over saved and unsaved alike. And at the end of this time, the end of this thousand years, Hasatan's brief period of freedom will put humanity uh, to one final test before the final judgment. That's premillennialism. There's something known as postmillennialism as well, the belief that the millennial kingdom will be established through the evangelistic mission of the body of the Messiah. This enterprise will be so successful, according to this theory, that all or most people will become followers of Yeshua, resulting in a lengthy period of peace before Messiah's second coming. This, brief, this belief places emphasis on the ecclesia's need to reform through not only the gospel but through law, the political and cultural spheres as part of bringing world systems into greater conformity to the demands of the Messiah, the King, and thus many social, economic, and educational problems are solved. This period closes in this understanding with the second coming of the Messiah, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment. And finally, there's a view of the millennium known as amillennialism, and this belief understands that the thousand years actually is symbolic. It's a symbolic number representing an indefinite long period of time, which happens to correspond to the entire span of time from Yeshua's first coming until his second coming. The amillennialist believes that the scriptures do not predict a period of universal peace and righteousness before the end of the world. Instead, good and evil will coexist until the second coming of the Messiah. So with that background, let's dive in to the biblical text. Read with me verse 20 of Luke chapter 17. Now when Yeshua was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with signs to be seen, nor will they say, look here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So we see the questions here of the Pelashim, the Pharisees, and Yeshua's response to them. You see, both Yeshua and Yochanan, the immerser, had preached for some time that the kingdom was at hand. You see, our Jewish people prayed regularly, daily, for the coming of Adonai's kingdom or his reign, expecting it to include Israel and creation's restoration. In addition, most of our Jewish people expected a Messiah to appear very imminently and free them from the Roman overlords, right? And so the Pelashim, the Pharisees, apparently desired to know the cosmic signs preceding the coming of the kingdom. Why? So that they could be sure not to miss it and to develop schemes to predict when it would come. At the same time, this might have 
been, as we've seen earlier, another attempt to trap Yeshua as well. In any event, Yeshua's answer here corrected a couple popular notions of Jewish teachers at that time. Number one, the kingdom would not be ushered in in such a way that it could be predicted with visible signs. Secondly, the kingdom would not come in exactly the way people expected that it would come, via an earthly war or messianic figures that were claiming followings. Notice a couple of points about the kingdom and how to relate to it. And so we're going to see here a, a not yet aspect of the kingdom and a now portion of the kingdom in his understanding and his teaching. Let's talk about this twofold nature of God's kingdom, both the present and a future dimension. Again, the Pharisees assumed the kingdom of God was going to be constituted by a military king. They expected the Messiah to come and to reestablish the kingdom of David and Solomon enjoyed a thousand years earlier. But we see here in verse 21, Yeshua says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And so as he spoke these words to the Pharisees here, They didn't recognize the king was standing right in front of them. Here's a simple way to understand the kingdom of God. When you think kingdom of God, think of a king. (laughs) The only thing you need to have a kingdom is a king. When you have crowned Yeshua as king and submitted to his rule over you, you are in the kingdom. In other words, the present nature of Adonai's kingdom, the present nature of it, is spiritual, not political, not material. And so becoming part of Adonai's kingdom requires a completely changed mind and heart that only God can produce as you and I yield our lives to him. But the kingdom of God has a dual meaning. In addition to being this invisible kingdom in the present, the scripture also reveals the kingdom of God has a future aspect to it. There will be a literal, visible kingdom of God in our future revealed in its full glory and its full power. Sometime in the future, Yeshua will literally rule over all the nations. When Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, told Miriam that Yeshua would be born, he made several announcements about Yeshua, didn't he? He would be called Yeshua, he would be great, and he would save his people from their sins. And Yeshua has already done those things. Check. But the angel Gabriel also predicted a time when, quote, the government shall be upon his shoulders. That has not happened yet. But one day it's going to happen. All the governments of the world are going to look to Yeshua as their leader. So we must be personally related to him. We cannot be sure whether, again, the Pharisees were questioning Yeshua here in a hostile sense or not. But given their track record, they may have been asking him skeptically, when is the kingdom coming? The general Jewish belief was that the kingdom of God would begin with a bang, would begin with a powerful Messiah establishing his rule in the land of Israel, delivering the nations from her enemies. But here is this carpenter from nowhere with a ragtag group of fishermen, and there's no sign even close that he's about to defeat the Romans and usher in a glorious new age. Sure, he did a few miracles, But where is the clear evidence that he's establishing his kingdom rule? That's their perspective as they're asking him for clarification. So Yeshua answers them. 
And what he says is the kingdom of God is in your midst in the person of the king. And yet you've not recognized it because you wrongly expect it to be ushered in with all this pomp and circumstance. And so when Yeshua says here that the kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed, he's referring to his initial coming, the initial coming of the kingdom, not to his second coming, because he quickly adds that the coming will be like a flash of lightning, which I want to take up in a second, which is pretty obvious and pretty dramatic. Thus, the initial coming of God's kingdom begins relatively unnoticed as people yield their lives to the lordship of the Messiah, Yeshua. He begins to reign in our hearts. But this is not the final form of his kingdom. He will return personally in kavod, in glory, in koach, in power to judge his enemies and to rule over the entire earth as he goes on to teach through the end of this chapter. Now, the application of these two verses already is this. If you've not personally trusted in the Messiah Yeshua and you're not thus living daily under his lordship, you're not in the kingdom of God. You're in serious danger of coming under his awful judgment when he returns as suddenly as a flash of lightning. And then it's going to be too late. If you're truly in God's present kingdom, then you will be in his future kingdom when he returns. But Yeshua gives his disciples some warnings to take to heart so that they would be sure to endure and not be deceived until he comes. Let's read about it. Verse 22, then Yeshua said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the, the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go and chase after them. For just as lightning flashes from one part of the sky and lights up another part, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer much and be rejected by this generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was just the same as in the days of Lot. They were... What? Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed them all. Things will be the same on the day when the Son of Man is made fully known. In that day, the one who is in the roof, on the roof, and his possessions in the house must no, not go down to take them away. In the same way, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken along and the other left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other left. Uh, in other manuscripts, it says in verse 36, there will be two in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they replied. And he said to them, where there is a corpse, there also will the vultures be gathered. So this Q&A about the kingdom leads to Yeshua's more detailed instructions about the kingdom in four specific areas for the benefit of his disciples, for us. Let's talk about these areas. Number one, let's talk about the timing 
of the coming of the kingdom. There will be a longing for, quote, the days of the Son of Man. Why? Because Yeshua's disciples are going to suffer severe persecution before he returned. We're starting to see that now. As well as false sightings of the Son of Man. Yet there will be no missing him when he does appear. He will not appear until after the obligation, he tells us, that he must first die according to God's plan of redemption to redeem a people back for himself. Now, notice here that Yeshua, he wants to make biblical prophecy simple concerning his second coming. He used metaphors that everybody can understand concerning his return and the Messianic kingdom, such as being unmistakable as a lightning flash that illuminates the whole sky and the whole earth. Yeshua said his coming was going to be like lightning. Now, you can do your own research about this, and you will find some fascinating stuff about lightning that will, I believe, help you understand this aspect of Yeshua's return. For example, did you know that lightning strikes 100 times every second somewhere on this mud ball? Did you know that? So how is his return like lightning? First... Lightning strikes when there's a storm. When Yeshua returns, he's going to come into a stormy world of political and economic chaos. When there's a storm, we should be cautious about lightning. When we see a political storm, when we see an economic storm, watch out for his return. Second, lightning occurs suddenly. Lightning usually travels from cloud to ground and then flashes back upward at a speed of one ten thousandth of a second. You won't have time to make teshuva when he comes. So we better be right with the Lord before he returns. Third, lightning possesses awesome koach, awesome power. Listen to this. In a split second lightning flashes, the air in that channel is heated to over 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit. And this rapid heating causes such a shock that there's an audible sonic boom called thunder, right? The energy discharged, though, in a single stroke of lightning. Listen to this. It's enough to lift your vehicle 62 miles straight up. It has that power. That's powerful. That's Yeshua's return. It's powerful. And finally, you never know exactly when lightning will strike. It's always unexpected. People who have been struck by lightning and survived say that they never expected it, of course, to happen. Had they known it was going to happen, they would have taken precautions to avoid it. The return of Yeshua is going to happen when people least expect it. That's the timing of the kingdom, according to Yeshua. But let's talk about the earthly conditions that will be ripe when the kingdom does come. We read about it here in verses 26 through 30. Scripture says nobody except Adonai knows the day or the hour of Yeshua's return. But it's possible, right, to discern the season, the general time. I loved many of you were were believers back when the book came out, 88 Reasons Why uh, you know, the rapture will occur in 1988. It was interesting. The guy was taking credit cards for payments into 1989, but whatever. Um, seemed a little inconsistent. But it's possible to discern the general time or the season. Yeshua predicted that when the world conditions match those during the times of Noah and Lot, we should start paying attention because Adonai's judgment is going to happen soon, as it did to their generations. 
Two important conditions as we think about their generations of Noah and Lot that were taking place. Number one, during the time of Noah and during the time of Lot, there was extreme immorality and wickedness. In Genesis chapter 19, we read that perverted sexual behavior was widespread in Sodom and Gomorrah. People were and they will be responsive to preached warnings, unresponsive rather, to warnings of coming judgment. That's what we're doing. We're warning people. Number two, while they were surrounded by this immorality and wickedness in their generations, the people lived lives as if nothing was wrong. They accepted that kind of behavior as normal. And instead of the public being outraged or alarmed at the wickedness, Yeshua said they did what? Kept on eating, kept on drinking, kept on marrying, kept on giving in marriage. Phrases that describe people living their lives normally. Even if they didn't personally participate in the wickedness of their culture, they condoned it by acting as if nothing was wrong. People living in these generations of Noah and Lot were unprepared for the calamity to come. Similarly, most people living in our day before Yeshua's second coming will be unprepared for it, for the judgment that's going to follow his return, and they're going to perish in it. They're unprepared. Rav Shaul actually writes to his young mentee in the faith, Timothy, which confirms the, in the last days there's going to be a rise in our generation of immorality and wickedness. We saw it in their generation. And he warns his mentee with these words in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. But understand this, Shaul writes him, that in the last days hard times will come. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, hard-hearted, unforgiving, backbiting, without self-control, brutal, hating what is good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to an outward form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Does that sound like the United States and the rest of the world today? Yes. Yeshua said, when we see conditions that match those of Noah and Lot to be ready at the appearing of his second coming, that's going to constitute the greatest apocalypse or appearance in history. So it leads us to the urgency related to this coming kingdom. When Yeshua's second coming appears, everyone he's telling us here must flee for cover. There's an image here of haste, isn't there, of, of forgetting possessions, a property, worldly concerns to get to the street to either greet the returning king or to flee from impending doom. Now recall, again, historically, yes, in Noah's day, yet there was a flood, but God delivered Noah and his family. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire and sulfur, but Adonai delivered Lot and two of his daughters. And the same God who delivered them will protect us through this upcoming time of great tribulation and judgment. Now, some of you don't believe we're going to be going through that. The Shaliach Peter, Kepha, made a comment about this in 2 Peter 2, verse 5 and forward. He did not spare the ancient world. He preserved only Noah, a proclaimer of righteousness, along with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He devastated the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing them to ashes, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He rescued Lot, a righteous man, deeply troubled 
Some of you are like Lot, deeply troubled by the shameless immorality of the wicked. For that righteous man, while living among them, was tormented. Do you feel tormented in the righteous, in his righteous soul day after day by lawless deeds he saw and heard? Therefore, the Lord certainly knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous being punished until the day of judgment. Likewise, he says, don't make the mistake of being Lot's wife. What does that mean? Someone who underestimated the destructive power of God's judgment and perished because she was slow to seek his refuge, to seek refuge. In addition, she is instructive, I believe, that we are not to love this world. She placed her interests, she placed her affections on an earthly society rather than a heavenly one. We find in Genesis chapter 19 again, we learn that even after the angels warned them to leave, Lot and his family, they hesitated. And so what, what happened? The angels had to forcefully put their hands on them, drag them out of the city. God strictly warned them to not look back while the city's being destroyed. Yeshua said in verse 32 here, remember Lot's wife. As they were fleeing Sodom, Lot's wife looks back. She becomes a pillar of salt. And why does Yeshua here tell us to remember her? Because her mistake was this. She still loved Sodom so much, she couldn't resist one last look. My friends, it is not a time to look back or to hesitate. For you see, before Lot actually moved into Sodom, there's no record of him being married. So we assume he finds a wife in Sodom. He lives there long enough to raise a family. And on the mountain that day, Lot's wife was out of Sodom. But Sodom wasn't out of her. She represents people who have a superficial interest in God in the scriptures. But they never truly commit themselves to him. And so she disobeyed the angel's command. And Lot's wife looks back and she perished in that awful judgment. And then Yeshua states the principle rightly. Whoever tries to keep his life will what? Lose it. But whatever loses his life, whoever loses his life will preserve it. In other words, to be so attached to the things of this earth that we want to hang on to them more than we want heaven is to jeopardize our eternal souls. Let's talk about the purpose of the coming kingdom verses 34 to the end of the chapter, the purpose for the coming of the kingdom would be judgment. Yeshua continues his graphic description here with more examples. The point of them being that when he returns, he's going to do some separation. He's going to separate people, even those who are intimate companions. Some will be ready for his return. Some won't be ready. First, it says two will be in the same bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding flour at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. And perhaps Yeshua intended here that one separation would take place at night and the other during the daytime to reinforce the fact that he could return at any time, day or night. In any case, whenever he returns, some people on the earth will be sleeping and others will be awake and working. Again, when he returns suddenly, all humanity is going to be divided into separate groups. Those who have lived for themselves with no regard for God, without submitting themselves to his kingdom and his lordship, they're going to fall under his judgment and be left 
as carcasses for the vultures. The other group are those who have submitted their lives to King Yeshua when he comes. They're not seeking to live for this life alone, accumulating all the junk that the world lives for. They have willingly given up their lives for the sake of God's kingdom. Their focus is on the Lord. Their focus is on his soon coming. They will escape his judgment. Those taken will experience punishment and will die, while those left will enter the kingdom. This is the truly left behind. I need to write a book called Truly Left Behind. Since they will be tzaddikim, righteous ones, they will go into the millennium to replenish the earth at that time. Now, verse 37 is an interesting verse. It can be difficult to fully grasp here. The question of the disciples, where, Lord, is ambiguous. Are they, gonna, are they asking where he's going to return or where the, where the judgment's going to take place or where, those, where are those being taken to? In light of Yeshua's answer, though, it seems to me that they probably were asking where the judgment's going to take place. And Yeshua's answer is likewise a little difficult to understand. There are a variety of interpretations that you'll read about. It could mean that just as vultures gather on dead bodies, so where the spiritually dead are found, there inevitably there will be judgment. Or the sense could be that when the judgment comes, it will be obvious, just as the location of a corpse is obvious by the presence of vultures. Or it could mean that judgment not only will be obvious, but also permanent and universal. In any event, when judgment comes, it will be final. And thus Yeshua is really saying here, he's saying, don't worry about where the judgment's going to happen in terms of a geographical location, because once it comes, it'll be too late and all will see in it, all will see its horrific finality. Just as surely as vultures are drawn to a corpse, so that surely judgment's going to come on the wicked when I return. I'm telling you, folks, if this passage doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. So let's talk about being prepared. Let's talk about life preparations for the kingdom. How are we to live in this present day, taking into account this teaching here on the kingdom? Well, we have to faithfully await the kingdom's consummation when he returns in glory to judge everyone. But there's several aspects to it I think we can glean from this verse for today. Number one, to be in God's future kingdom requires patient endurance now. Yeshua is warning his disciples that they're going to face times when they inwardly would long to see him return in power and glory. But they're going to have to wait because it's not yet Adonai's time. Which one of us in this room has not longed for the Lord to return to straighten the mess that we're in? We look at world problems and we cry out, how long, O Lord, as the prophets did. We look at the, our personal problems and we look at the trials that we all struggle with and we cry out, how long, O Lord? But until then... We have to patiently endure as we wait with hope for his coming. That's the first aspect. It requires patient endurance right now. Number two, to be in his future kingdom requires discernment. Do not be deceived. Discernment in the present. 
As we wait and we don't yet see His coming, false messiahs will arise. People will tempt us to turn to those who seem to have the answers for us right now. Look there. Look here. Yeshua says, don't go away. Don't run after them. For you see, we were always vulnerable to the temptation for quick fix answers rather than patiently waiting on God. Hasatan doesn't try to lead us astray by something or someone who is blatantly false, but by those who come in Yeshua's name. Be careful. And finally, to be in God's future kingdom requires faithful readiness in the present. And Yeshua used two examples from history here, didn't he? Noah and Lot to illustrate this same point, namely the need to be ready for the certain and coming day of judgment when Yeshua returns. Both the people in Noah's day and the people in Sodom in Lot's day were notoriously wicked, the Bible tells us. They went about with the normal affairs of their lives, oblivious to God, oblivious to his coming judgment. The same was true in the days of Lot. There's nothing wrong with eating. There's nothing wrong with drinking. There's nothing wrong with getting married and, and, and be given in marriage. Nothing wrong with buying, nothing wrong with selling, nothing wrong with planting, nothing wrong with building. Verse 28, the problem was they were living in total disregard of God. As Yeshua states it, the warning is for people who just go on with their life as if judgment never is going to come. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, And I think it bears repeating at its conclusion. Three major views regarding Messiah's kingdom. The amillennial view teaches that his kingdom is his spiritual reign over his people in this age. The promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob regarding their possessing the land of Canaan and their descendants ruling over the nations are all spiritually fulfilled now in the Messiah Yeshua. While I respect so many men and women who hold that view, I reject it. It seems to me that Messiah's present rule over his people in this wicked and corrupt world is a far cry from the glorious kingdom promised in the scriptures. I agree that Messiah's present reign over his people is the initial phase of his kingdom. But I believe that Yeshua is going to literally reign over the nations on the throne of David in power and in glory. The post-millennial view teaches that Messiah's kingdom will come gradually, but certainly as the gospel spreads and triumphs over evil. Our text makes it clear here that the world is not going to be born again when Yeshua returns. Rather, it's going on with self-centered business as usual. I reject the amillennial view. The premillennial view holds that Yeshua is going to return in power and glory to judge this wicked world and establish his kingdom on the earth, known as the New Jerusalem, for a thousand years. That is the view that makes the most sense and the most scriptures to me. When you put all the scriptures together, it makes the most sense of the most passages to me. Now, all three of these views, they do share some things in common. Yeshua is coming again in bodily form in power in glory when he comes he's going to judge every person we need to be ready 
We need to be ready for his coming by trusting him as Messiah and submitting to him as Lord now. Stand with me today. Awake, 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 O daughters of Zion. Sound an alarm on this holy mountain. Father, we're one day closer to your return than we were yesterday. We see the generations that you mentioned of Lot and Noah, and we are right there. Lord, it's a weighty responsibility to take the message, but Lord, it is an assignment that you've given to us as your ecclesia, as your kehilah. Father, as we go throughout this week and as we in the highways and byways and we compel them to come into the kingdom. Maybe you're not looking for a conflict necessarily with a neighbor or coworker. Give them a flyer. Have them come here. Play good cop, bad cop. Do what you got to do to warn people. There's not going to be time. Lightning strikes one ten thousandth of a second. There's no time for repentance when he comes. That has to be already dealt with. So I thank you, Lord, that we live in this generation, one in which the prophets longed to see. And after two days, he would revive us, and on the third day, he would raise us up. The day is unto the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years like unto one day. Lord, could we be at the beginning of, a third, of the third day? Father, I thank you for your scriptures. This is truth, and every man a liar. So, Lord, if these people are like me and they're taking in a lot, of, a lot of lies through the news, no matter what we listen to, Lord, may we go back to the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I, prepare, I pray, oh God, that we might be your tzaddikim in this hour to be the salt and light in this earth, to stand up to power when it goes against biblical principles. Lord, as we stand up to a spirit of Haman and anti-Semitism in the, in the earth today, tomorrow, as we stand with like-minded believers and like-minded Jewish people, Lord, we stand up to the Ben and Jerry's of the world who want to pull out of Israel for being politically correct and with lack of understanding on the issues. Father, we just shake our heads because we see the end game here. And so, Father, I'm asking that you pull down the deception in the eyes of our family members, in the eyes, oh God, of our friends and coworkers. Reveal, release the veil, Lord. When a Jewish person comes back to a living relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through your son, Yeshua, it's like a veil is torn in two. At the day that the temple veil was torn in two in Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies. That thick veil was torn. Lord, we ask that you would release the blindness from not only among Jews, but among believers that think, oh God, they're not going to be here for this time of trouble leading up to your return. We are going to be here. Lord, believers in China in oppressed places laugh at this doctrine that says we're somehow exempt from tribulation. They're already living it now.
So God, as we gird up our loins spiritually, as you sharpen us in the word, Lord, we're one day closer. And that's exciting. Because Lord, whether it's in our generation or our kids' generation or our grandkids' generation, it cannot be long, God, because we're tracking with the signs of your coming kingdom. Lord, it could be soon. We could be seven plus years away. But Lord, we're, about, we're on mission. So I thank you, Lord, that our lives are meaningful in your kingdom. If there's any listening on podcasts now or on the live stream now that never have made Yeshua the Lord of your life, I'm here to challenge you. I'm here to double dog challenge you to make Yeshua the Lord of your life before it's too late. This is not a scare tactic or a scare message. This is a message of preparedness. You've gone your own way. You've been buying, selling, giving in marriage, marrying without regard to your creator. And your creator has sent his very best to have a relationship with you, to atone for all of your sins, if you would receive his free gift of eternal life. How do we do that? We repent of sin. God, we are so sorry for the crimes we've committed against you. As an act of our will, Lord, we choose to make tshuva, to turn 180 degrees away from our sin, to begin walking the path of discipleship after you. That's repentance. It's not about sorrow, although that's an aspect of it. It's about turning from the way you've been going, turning back to God and walking his path. So choose that path today. Confess it to God, that sin. Choose to walk with him and receive the gracious gift of eternal life and life here more abundantly. If that's you listening, July 24th, 2021 is your day one. Now, Lord, open up your word to them. Open up people in their life to disciple them. Open up fellowships, communities where they are to get grounded in these last days. God, we're grateful for your healing testimony, for the time of preparation, for the time of worship, for the time of praise, and a time to stand with our brothers and sisters. Some are out there on the corners at Planned Parenthood, compelling those to think again about when life is conceived at conception. And they get spit upon and they get yelled upon, but they know they're on mission for you. And so I thank you for those who are volunteering in these ways that are uncomfortable to our flesh, but are fulfilling the mandate of kingdom business in this generation. Others are fighting the good fight in government, and in your office, and in your neighborhood, you're standing up and you're willing to be a curse for Yeshua. Suffering's part of this walk with Yeshua. So make no mistake about it, new believer in Yeshua. Times of testing will come to your faith. Times of persecution will come. Stand strong. The victory is the Lord's. He defeated Hasatana Golgotha for you, for your sin. So walk in his authority. Walk in his power. Walk in his anointing. We bless you today, O oh God. And Father, as we bless everyone from your scriptures going forward today. May we have been encouraged because we spent the time with you today. 
And so as God told Moses to tell Aaron and his sons how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel, he said in his word, May the Lord bless you and keep you on this day. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you his peace in the name of the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth. And in him we say, Hallelujah. Baruch Hashem. Shabbat Shalom. Shuvot Tov. We'll see you at the rally. Men, we'll see you Tuesday night. We're back here, not at 10 o'clock, but 5 o'clock. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.